everybody. Welcome to Grace Garage Pod with Coach Jason Pridmore. I'm Greg White. You're not going to hear a lot from me because sitting in California at home is Jason Pridmore and a special guest, Steve English, who is on with us at JP's house. How are you golfing idiots doing? You guys having a good time? Are you talking to me or Stevie when you say idiots? Well, pretty much I'm talking to both of you. It's not, not nice. the way you say it, Steve. I'm talking to both of you at the same time. This is going to be a very quick podcast. If you're going to kick it off just by insulting us, Greg, I, I've got, I've got, we got plenty golf of things to, to be We got right golf now. to play, yeah, well. Plus, I, I heard last week's podcast started off with Greg's podcast with Jason Pridmore, and then there were some crickets being played, I understood. Is this correct? <laughs> That's true. That was, we call that production value. <laughs> That's yeah. pretty good. I go, I, go, I go, hey, JP, and then crickets. You heard that, That's huh? pretty good. I'm sorry I wasn't here last week, especially, especially since you had Cam on here. I would have loved to have chatted with him and i hear we got another cam coming on soon yeah hopefully next week cam peterson but jay the reason you weren't on scheduling conflicts but also i know you had a cold how you feeling i've still got it a little bit it's been two weeks and i'm still like kind of trying to get rid of this little uh whatever i had everybody seems to have had it everybody tells me they have it so you know hopefully everybody who's a little bit sick is better and uh i was at the track for five days and then stevie flew in on sunday didn't you stevie I have to say, I do think JP was struggling quite badly with that cold. He was barely getting into the 60s around the golf course. So, uh, obviously, plenty of recovery needed, Jay. You know, 69, <laughs> 70s, you know, I expect more from you. Uh, we had a good day yesterday, G-Dub. I sent you that yeah, little video, that's... but we uh, we went to a pretty special place in Palm Springs the last couple of days. And, um, you know, we got, we got a little bit of a week with Steve. So, it's nice to have him out here and... Uh, I, I, you know, unfortunately, I took him to the best place first. So everything else from here is downhill for him. So, yeah. Good move, Jay. Really, really bright move. By the way, everybody, this this podcast is brought to us by Bike911.com. If you need some legal advice, not you, Steve, because you're in Europe. I, I don't think, I mean, you're here in California I still now. still genuinely so. need a lot of legal advice. <laughs> yeah. He might so need maybe, some now, yeah. <laughs> call Alex Asante, Bike911.com. Now, in this podcast, we're going to talk about some news and some things, catch up with JP and uh, and Steve, and we're going to talk all things World Superbike. And from what I understand, you guys were in a car last night, and you pretty much did the podcast all on your own, but we're going to rehash some of the things that you were able to speak about and maybe add a couple questions uh, from my perspective in this whole situation. But I guess why don't we just jump into it? We'll get to the news presented by Arai. Do it. That's right, people. It's December, which means the holiday season is upon us which means you should get down to your local motorcycle dealership. Check out Arai Helmets. Get fitted properly. Go to the website in your free time. Check out all the different colorways they have. Get yourself an Arai helmet, both on the motocross side, adventure touring side, and, of course, your street slash road race side. AraiAmericas.com, because your head deserves the best. Uh, 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 uh. That's just like... It's just like a hair away from porn music, isn't it? It's just like a couple beats shy of being. I don't know how much you, how much you music. watch that stuff, Cheetah. No, no, no. I just read about it on the internet. Got it. Feel ya. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. all right. So yeah, yeah. first topic is <laughs> ah, this is so funny because some interesting news. I don't know how much you guys have been following lately, but a couple days ago, some news comes out where the new uh, the the reelected president of the FIM comes out and basically says. Hey, by the way, Valentino Rossi's VR46 team is going to switch to Yamaha equipment in 2024, even though there's a contract for Ducati through 2024. Now, a lot of people have been talking. Ducati's kind of hinted at it before that 
supporting eight bikes in MotoGP is a lot. It's a little bit too much. They're stretching their resources thin across the board. But then Uccio, who's Alessio Salucci, who's the team principal for the VR46 team, this morning he fired back and said, no, we're going to honor our contract. So a couple questions here. Number one, what do you think is actually going to happen? Just knowing the, the sport like you do. And the second bit is, how bad does Yamaha need another team in MotoGP? Or do they at all? Maybe they're good with two, like Suzuki was. So I'll go to Steve English first, our guest. Steve, what do you think? Uh, well, at the end of the day, are Ducati an Italian brand going to want to cut ties with Rossi or any other team? They're obviously going to want to keep Rossi. So they're going to do their best to keep that one pretty sweet. For Yamaha, it's all well and good that they will want to have more bikes on the grid. If you're a customer team right now, what bike do you actually want to be on? Because all that matters is whether or not you're able to win. And you've got a much better chance of winning if you've got a Ducati, which means you've got much better chances of getting sponsors. I know sponsors obviously isn't going to be a big concern for Rossi's team. They've got a big enough draw right from the outset. But winning is what matters. And right now, the Ducati gives you that better option. Unless you become the factory team, why would you look for something that may not be a better overall package? JP? You know, I find what I find funny about it is is that each of the Ducati teams this year all had success. You know, when you look at uh, Rossi's team, you look at Grassini, Pramac, uh, and obviously the factory bikes. I, I don't know, Stevie, if I could think of a time when you have support teams that um, that have had real success. I think uh, it's going to be interesting to see with the, the new Aprilia team, if they can have the same kind of success. Because I think um, when you looked at the test at Valencia afterwards, um, they did have a little bit of success with Oliveira. He seemed very happy and comfortable immediately on the Aprilia. I don't know which one of those teams that you would consider. I mean, if you had if you had to cut a team, I don't know who you would cut. I think that going into 23, the Grassini team is probably the one I'm most interested because you got Alex Marquez and um, uh, DeGiantonio on that team. And, and on paper, you sit there and go, of the factory supported teams that Ducati has, that would be the weakest one on paper. I think it, it could be an interesting year for Alex Marquez, kind of a do or die year for him. And Digia to me just didn't really, he had some, he had a little flashes this year, didn't he? But really the last sort of half of the season, he wasn't really anything. So it's an interesting thing to answer the second part of that question. Yamaha does need a team. Uh, they do need a, I think they definitely need a second team. Um, but until their bike maybe is a little bit better, I think it'll be hard to to woo anybody away to jump on Yamaha equipment. Yeah, because I think the biggest thing is, and you mentioned the teams there, Jay, if you're Ducati, which of those teams is the most expendable to you? And it is probably Grassini, even though they were the most successful team last year, but you're successful because you got the right riders. And that's the thing about MotoGP right now. If you've got the right people around you, you can have a lot of success because the bikes are all very competitive. There's not that much of a difference between any bike on the grid, even though we look at it and we say, Honda's had a really bad year, Yamaha struggled with Morbidelli, this, that, and the other. The actual time difference isn't that big. So if you've got the right rider, the right crew around them, you can have a lot of success. Grassini showed that right from the start of the season with Bastianini. He's a factory Ducati rider now, and that's the way it goes. The, the problem for any independent team is you never have that chance to really build it year on year because if you've got a really good rider they're going to a factory team you see that in super bikes especially you see it in MotoGP, and that's why the factory teams get all the success if you're looking back to 
when was the last time we had independent teams able to have a lot of success? You're looking individual years in MotoGP with Grassini, whether you're looking at Melandri finishing second, third in the World Championship for a couple of years, Sede now challenging for a World Championship. You go back to, you know, maybe the, the Pons Honda team in the 500 era, uh, Biaggi when he came up with Irv Kanemoto, things yeah. like that. Isolated seasons. But the reason that they're isolated is because those great riders go to a factory team. And you, you need to strike when you're in top. That's where Grassini needed to strike when the iron was hot last year with Bastianini. They didn't win the championship, but they're not expected to win the championship. They finished top three in the world, so it was a super successful season for them. They won a lot of races, and now it's up to them to show that they can make the next step. Is Alex Marquez as good as Bastianini? Maybe not, but it's up to him to be able to prove what he can do in a MotoGP bike. He's a Moto3 and a Moto2 world champion, so he's a really good rider. But is he good enough to take on that next step that they need? I don't think finishing top three in the world is a realistic goal for him next year. But if Grassini are able to finish with one rider inside the top six, it's been a very successful season for them. And that's where those teams need to look at what qualifies the successful season. Ducati need to assess what's a successful season. And then you need to make your steps to see whether or not, if we're scaling back, who's going to miss out? And then if Yamaha are stepping up to have a second team, who are they going to go to? And they need to pick the right team because we saw it with the ORNF team that it just it just wasn't there for them. And they struggled all the way through the season. Whether that comes down to the fact that you've got Davi at the end of his career, Crutchlow coming back from retirement, and then a guy moving from Moto3 straight to MotoGP like Binder. So there's a lot of circumstances that go into that. But also, it all comes down to resources. When you lose your big sponsor like Petronas, suddenly it becomes really difficult for teams. That's where if Yamaha come in with a satellite team, they need that team to be really well resourced. Keep in mind too, that there's also, there's also two spots that are going to be available that we don't know about, right? 24 grid spots available, only 22 on the grid for next year, as I see it. So the the future also for VR 46 is they can look at what Yamaha does. I mean, the news is, is out there now that basically the motor they were supposed to be on this year started blowing up in testing and they were actually on 2020 motors that they had, which also means that, those riders on that team, you know, like Bender was on a probably a 2019 motor and you're missing out quite a bit there. So I think the question mark is how much did Yamaha actually spend to keep Quattararo and how much are they going to be able to allocate for development of this new bike when they had an absolutely miserable test, right? The motor ended up being a pooch. They didn't go any faster. Can they find the problem? Is the motor going to be strong enough to be more on what Suzuki was this year and get them competitive, that's going to turn the head. There's no chance that Yamaha, being exactly where they are, is going to woo away VR46 team from a Ducati, especially when they have the option in 2024 to keep going, Steve. Yeah, but the other side of that coin as well is how much of the season are we looking back at now with you know a full MotoGP season in our mind, as opposed to you look at the first half of the year, everyone was talking about how great Quattro was, how great the Yamaha was. This is a great package, this, that, and the other. And then you look at the second half of the year, and then you talk a lot about how Ducati did a great job. But you also have to look at it and say, Fabio did a bad job the second half of the season. Yamaha did a bad job the second half of the season. So your perception of where Yamaha are at right now is skewed by the fact that Morbidelli did very little all season. So you kind of discount his results. You look at the r team, and again, like you said, Greg, there's plenty of reasons why they struggled. But 
Fabio struggled as well, and a lot of that has to come down, and the blame has to go equally between rider and team in a situation like that because they were good enough to be winning so many races at the start of the season. They still should have been able to close out a championship, and they just weren't able to get it done. If they had a closed out championship, we'd probably be looking at things very differently, and we'd be saying Ducati need to have all eight bikes on the grid because they need the numbers. You know, Yamaha, they're still able to win a championship, so it's still okay if they've only got two bikes right now. So I think it's it's always easy to look at an overall picture and come to a conclusion, but racing's all about the nuances, and there's a lot that went on in that GP season and in the last few GP seasons just because of COVID and trying to get bikes developed from Japan versus developing them in Europe. There's a lot of factors went into why Yamaha have ended up behind the eight ball right now. But if they had won the championship, we would have viewed things very differently. And they weren't that far off winning it. So it's going to be interesting to see how that comes out in the first half of next season. So. All right. So keeping with the MotoGP theme, an article came out on speedweek.com about KTM and that they are saying that the, the leaders of KTM are saying that uh, 18 races would be better than 22. But the manufacturers have agreed up to 22 races, you know, for the entire season where Thorna CEO Espeleta uh, came out and he said that the European rounds don't make MotoGP any money. So they need these flyaway races. In addition to that, he referenced Formula One talking about how MotoGP cannot schedule on top of a Formula One race. At least they don't want to do it even in time slot. So if there are different time slots in the world, but of course there was this whole debacle where the what is it was it Steve Mugello or something was at the same time as an Italian Formula One race and the fans dropped out quite a bit. So there's a lot to it from a business perspective. But the bottom line is what we're going to talk about here. And my question for you guys is, is 21, 22 MotoGP races flying these riders around the world having nearly a month off, I think in May. It, is MotoGP there or is it a desperate measure to try to continue to to stretch out what seems to be a sport that's dwindling a little bit in popularity, Steve? Well, you say it's dwindling. I think one of the things that's always super important for everyone to to realize and acknowledge, like everyone listening to this podcast is a big motorbike racing fan because there's no middle ground. You either love it or you don't know about it, it seems. And for everyone listening to this, they know how good racing is. But we are a niche sport in a small sport already. Like you look at motorsport as a whole, people think of car racing and then we're that small segment of it. Just like when you when you're driving down the road, how many bikes go past you? You know, in Europe it's not that many. In Ireland it's not that many. Even just the, the couple of days I've been here in California, I've seen way more bikes here than I have in a year in Ireland. So you know we're we're a very small niche sport. And I think it's always worth remembering that and putting that into the context of all the discussions and the comparisons between MotoGP and Formula One, they're not a realistic comparison because Formula One isn't a motorsport. Formula One is an event and a sport in and of itself. And it's right now the only massive form of motorsport in the world. Everything else is trying to clutch in and, and keep their money and, and build something. And I think it's always really important to to look at where we are and where we can be but also to be realistic about what has to happen for that to happen. I think having 21, 22 events is a massive calendar for MotoGP. I love racing. I'll sit down and I'll watch everything. But it's getting to the point, and we're in the middle of the World Cup in football, and we've had day after day after day of football. And you get to a point where there's just too much of a good thing. 
and you're happy that today's a day off before the quarterfinals. And I love football, but I'm kind of like, you know what? I'm ready for a day off because it'll mean that when we get to the the quarterfinals and we've got four really good matches, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to watch all of them. And then I've got another couple of days off before the semis and the final. You don't need to have it where I've got 20 days in a row of great football. And I think racing needs to look at that as well. And Formula One's the same. Formula One's adding, adding, adding. And it's going to probably have 24, 25 races. And it's unbelievable whenever you think, like, you can go to Vegas next year and go to the Formula One race. Who doesn't want to do that? I don't. You know, but... I don't. You, and by, <laughs> the way, Greg, World, by the way, Greg, World Cup is soccer, in case you didn't know. He's talking about, you know, just in case you didn't know. But see, I'm I like for me, I watched I don't, Ted Lasso. Well, well, I watched Ted Lasso. I know what football is. Great. That's okay. good for you. Good. <laughs> yeah. You know, the thing for me is I have I maybe have a I don't have a different perspective. I, I think putting MotoGP on the map is great. See, to me, Formula One, I look at more like Formula One and the interest that it has. It's so political to me. It's Formula One to me is like politics. It, it's. It, it divides people in the sense that people have their, their villains and they have the people that they believe in and people. But to me, watching it, I can't even watch it. And we had this discussion, Steve, a few times on our podcast. But Formula One, to me, I just literally can't watch it. It bores the absolute shit out of me. And I feel like right now what we have in racing all across the board, from your series in World Superbike to MotoGP, we literally don't know who's going to win week in and week out. Like we can't – we cannot sit there and go – with, with absolute certainty that Bagnaia is going to win every race or that, you know, there are, there are, there's enough um, distinction between bikes, teams, people that I think that each week, I mean, the podiums this year in MotoGP, there was a few of them where you would have gotten incredibly massive odds in Vegas on some of the podiums that were, were out there. Right. And, um, you know, if I was a gambling man type of thing, right, Stevie? Yeah. Um, I, I was just going to say, though, Jay, it, for the Formula One in Vegas, you can go there and sit at a sports book, and I'm sure that there's good action. I bet we could probably added. find some action over there. You're 100% right. But the thing is, is that the thing that makes – the thing that we need, in, in, in fairness, is if, if people that love Formula One really could take the time to, to pay attention to MotoGP um, – the fact of that matter is, is it's like it's MotoGP is so much more intriguing. And I'm not saying that from a motorcycle perspective because I'm such a fan like yourself. I watch everything. But it's it, – and when you look at the amount of races, let me ask you guys this. Are they doing this sprint race next year? I mean, I, I find it really interesting that we haven't heard as much talk about their sprint race on Saturday, kind of copying something that you're doing in World Superbike over there, Steve. I mean, are these guys going to – they're doing sprint races on, on every Saturday or is it – half i don't even know is it every saturday they're doing sprint races next year every saturday wow yeah that's gonna be we're i mean it's i and that's gonna be and they got 22 rounds is that what they have next year 22 rounds 22 yeah 21 21 21 yeah right now and and you know we've already seen you know we already saw a little bit of a debacle where was it last year that they were flying to was it indonesia or argentina was it where they where they had to wait a day because they couldn't get all their stuff there on the Friday. And, you know, I think that uh, scheduling is, is difficult. I just think of the wear and tear of, I mean, Stevie, how many, how many more, I, I mean, I, I don't know if I, I guess you would know this. How many members are on like Kawasaki's world Superbike team compared to like Ducati's MotoGP team? I mean, it's gotta be double the personnel easily. Correct. Yeah. 100%. Easily. Like the, when you look at, 
superbike teams they're small scale yeah you know you've got seven people in each side of the garage okay and then you've got your electronics guys and different things but you've got a very small team compared to what you have in in moto gp yeah i mean the ducati the ducati moto gp photo team photo was 100 yards away with a wide angle lens and they barely got everybody in it was pretty pretty crazy how many people it takes and those are the people at the racetrack not even the people back at the factory so yeah yeah, i mean it's gonna be wild um, all those races and i'm you know we're gonna be glued to everything the one thing I'll say about it is the reason that a sport like Formula One is successful is obviously the Netflix series did really well yeah. and it got people engaged in the political side of the sport. But make no bones about it. The reason Formula One is successful is because tickets cost 500 euro to go to a race. Crazy. So it's like it's like golf courses, Jay. When you see a golf course that costs $40, you're saying, that's going to be shit. I'm not yeah. paying that. When yeah. you see one that costs $400, yeah. you're saying, do you know what? I'd say that's pretty damn good. Got to be worth it. And Formula One has been able to bank on that for years. That's why they're able to charge so much for sponsorship compared to what a MotoGP team gets, compared to what a Superbike team gets, compared to what a domestic Superbike team gets. Yeah. And it's it's that level of perception that changes it all. And it's not about the race. And I think that's one of the big things that is very difficult for us on the motorcycle side to understand because our racing is so good. Yeah, you know, Everyone should want to sit down and watch Top rack against Johnny and Bautista. They should want to watch what's happening in MotoGP because, like you said, yeah, anyone can win. Yeah, but it, it's not about that. It's about selling the full event and having something that's that's special that people want to go to. Yeah, and the unfortunate reality of life is when something costs a lot more, it's a lot more exclusive, and you want to share it more. You're posting on social media, "Look where I am," all this kind of stuff. And that's what drives a lot of interest now because we are in that stage where it's what can you put into a 15-second clip. It's not about what happens over the full 40 minutes race. Because at the end of the day, when you look at the, the five-minute highlight video for a Formula 1 race, it looks epic. Yeah. And then when you sit down and watch an hour 45 of it, it's far from it. And I'm saying that as someone that's watched F1 their entire life. My first memory is watching an F1 race. And I struggle to sit down and watch them now because... You've gotten so conditioned to what we get in MotoGP, Superbikes, Supersport, all the classes, domestic, international, of being so good. Yeah. But it's not about the product. I think that's one thing that probably needs to needs to be addressed for, for all of us because the product is so good right now, and it should be one of the biggest sports and spectacles yeah, yeah, in the world. But Steve, here's the thing, okay? And this is what people don't realize about entertainment and especially about racing, like, there was a show some years ago that created an absolute fad of chopper bikes. It was called Orange County Choppers. Mm. And people kept saying, oh, yeah. that, that, that's a motorcycle show. That show had, they could have been making widgets. They could have been making sticks of butter. It made yeah. no difference. That show was about a family that bickered and fought and created things. The fact that it was motorcycles was kind of really just a side note. And I look at Formula One as a soap opera that has car racing in it. It's not, you know, yeah. I look at MotoGP, World Superbike, look at Moto America, and I think that you could say it's really about racing. The problem is, is that as we talk to people in marketing and big companies uh, in the U.S., racing isn't important to a young generation anymore. What's important is the storytelling. And that's where Formula One, 
under their latest, you know, after they bought it from Bertie Eccleston, I can't remember the name of the company, but they really focused on doing a good job. Yeah. And they've done a really good job. And that Netflix, that Netflix thing you're talking about is, is just the icing on the cake for what they've created. And that's the fundamental shift is, but the thing is, Steve, if you, if you have the amount of races formula one has, think about the amount of content that's constantly being generated. That's new. You know, when you have us, when we have 20 races, but we only have 10 venues here in Moto America, there's less of an opportunity weekend, another weekend, another weekend. And so you tend to get these, these, you know, these peaks and these valleys in terms of peaking interest. And we don't even know what's going on in Moto America for, you know, soap opera. We don't know who gets paid a certain salary. I mean, NFL, NBA, you know, all this trade's going on and this insider. And I think a lot of that has to do with the amount of interest it generates, which also brings in the amount of journalists that are interested in covering it so it's like a thing that just feeds and feeds and feeds itself and it's something you can't replicate or duplicate i think yeah and i think you make a good comparison to the nfl as well because i remember whenever i when i was a kid i started watching when i was probably about 12 and it used to be just about the 17 weeks the regular season and then the postseason and then from the super bowl until week one you never heard anything you might hear a bit about the draft and that was it and then suddenly it became about the senior bowl, the scouting combine, then the draft, and then it comes, you know, free agent, all these kind of things all became big events in themselves. And they were really clever to put everything a month apart. So February suddenly became about scouting or free agency. And then March becomes about the next thing. And then you're into the draft and then you're into training camp. And suddenly looking at 90 guys running wind sprints became newsworthy and you're just thinking watching a lineman important. watching a lineman it, go for a 440 like who cares yeah, yeah, yeah. watching this lunker but yeah. you're like okay all right i'm in yeah oh he looks strong oh. you know and you're, and you're just looking at it and thinking, like, it, it it reminds me so much of like when the olympics are on or, or especially the winter olympics because for someone from ireland i can understand running i can understand throwing things i can understand jumping over things i can understand fighting in the boxing or the judo but when the winter olympic comes on and it's curling, and you're looking at someone mm. sliding a rock down down an ice chute and sweeping away at it. You're there like, oh, I'll tell you what, they're very good. Look at the technique they have on that. Yeah. <laughs> and you're looking at it, and you get sucked in by something, and you just think, how, how am I interested in this? But you're interested in it because it's a big event, and all those things just add to why you will become engrossed in something, and that's where Formula One's fantastic for it. But Formula One's fantastic for it because they put the resources into it because they have the money. Every other sport in the world wants to have that kind of money. And that's where, why is why is the NFL the biggest game in town over here now? It, it used to not be. Like, uh, no one's going to call baseball America's game anymore, I presume, because who wants to look at that whenever they've got wall-to-wall football coverage, even though there's only four months of the year where there's actual games. And it's it's just the ability to sell things because you've got the resources in it. And when you look at TV contracts, when you look at anything, the sports that have the money, yeah, they get everything. I mean, and that's NFL where has their own the, network the too, Steve. Right? Yeah, NFL, NFL has their own network. They yes, con- you know that you have you have the gambling bit. Jason is unaware of this. Gambling, I, yeah. Gambling, what is that? Yeah, and and you have the you know you have fantasy football where people can do it for free or not. You're engaged and you're 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 into it. And the the greatest thing about something like fantasy is that now I'm interested in a player that's on the Bengals or I'm interested on in a player that's on the Eagles. I hate the Eagles, but the fact that they have a player who's on my fantasy team, next thing you know, huh? You don't hate him. You know the fight song. You love it. 
I don't know the fight song. Keep going. I don't want to keep going. I don't, I don't hate anything. Okay. But the, uh-huh. you know, as far as I'm concerned, all right. The Eagles can suck it. That's, that's all not nice. Say. All right. Anyway. All right. All right. So, so Steve, let's talk about paddock packs podcast because the last couple episodes have been very interesting with Peter Baum on who's a great inside asset into, into MotoGP talking about his opinion, technical stuff. I know you've been on the road. I don't know. You know, I know you did the intro for this latest one, but have you had a chance to actually listen to some of the information that's on your podcast, yours and a bunch of other people's podcasts? You haven't, no. And I wouldn't imagine you uh, would with the travel, but... I'm- yeah, I've, I've, I've been able to listen to parts of it because when you're on the road, you're, you're not able to sit down and listen to it. The thing with Peter is, Peter is phenomenal because I always look at it that, you know, when you've got... Um, when you've got any situation you've got certain levels of knowledge you know a journalist gets to a certain level a writer gets to a certain level engineer gets to a bit more team managers whatever it is and then you get some people that are just able to flip between a lot of different roles peter's a a, a commentator he's a journalist he's an engineer he's an well he was a crew chief a world championship winning crew chief he's an electronics engineer for 2d he's got so much experience that you you can't not learn when you talk to him or when you listen to him speak and so much of the insight that he has is really important and useful because it changes how you actually look at a session, how you look at a season, how you look at a rider and how you assess things. And uh, that's where Peter's really good because he cuts through all the bullshit. And he, um, yeah, and his, he had a really honest many view. many people that can do it as well as him. And he had an honest view of Yamaha. And he basically said, talking about this season, he goes, look, the reality is if you look across their riders, the four riders they had, there was only one good one, you know, and that's a tough thing to hear. But he goes, when you look at Ducati, you had you had eight really good riders. Now, DJ Antonio is the one person, JP, that you talked about. But if yeah. you look at him, he got a new crew chief, right? He got yeah. Carcetti, who came over from Suzuki for the test. And all of a sudden, DJ Antonio was like right in the mix and, and doing lap times that were better and more consistent than he's done. So, you know, it's it's you have to look at that and you say, OK, like that's the thing we were talking about before. It's a combination. It's not just a team. It's at fault. And it's not just a rider at fault. It's the blend of the two. But if you guys get a chance, go visit Paddock Pass Podcast. Put it in your in your feed and listen to it. There's some great insight from, from Peter about his assessment of the paddock. It's all technical. Some of it's technical. Some of it's rider-based. Some of it's just common sense stuff. It's really, really good. Tell us a little bit about that podcast, though, Steve, because there's a lot of moving parts. You know, when people tune into this, 90% of the time, they're going to get Jason and they're going to get myself. So, but tell us a little bit about the the working, the movement, and and what you might hear week to week on the Paddock Pass podcast. Did you notice that though, Jason? You miss one show, and suddenly it's ten percent of the output yeah, for a podcast. I, I get I get crickets. So, uh, I get you know, crickets, like, Steve. First of all, there was this month. There was this month where he was in a hospital in Australia. This is, by the way, our two hundredth episode. Okay. Is it? A month. Yes. I was in the hospital for four days in Australia, like five days, and it keeps going up. Pretty soon it'll be I missed a whole year. <laughs> well, you know how that goes. Yeah. It starts off, I, I it starts say, off Greg, in reality like two, at three inches, and by the time we're done, it's nine inches. You know, it happens. What are you talking about? Uh, um, the length of yeah. rope. Yeah, uh-huh. like, you know. Yeah, you need more rope than that at this anyway, point. Anyway, Pat, um, Pat Podcast uh, Podcast. I mean, for, first of all, thank you for the tongue twister of a name of a podcast. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's very easy, especially whenever we have the Paddock Pass podcast, Paddock Note Show, <laughs> by Patreon. It's uh, definitely easy to say for that one. Uh-huh. 
I've been trying to figure out ways where we can find a sponsor that begins with P and lots of other ways to just make it even more difficult. <laughs> but 200 shows is, is a great achievement for you as well because it takes a lot to, to put everything together for a show. And I just had my Spotify wrap up. And as usual, your pod was number one on my lessons. Oh, so, uh, that's amazing. Yeah. Thank I, you. I, 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 I'm not going to lie. I'm not sharing it on social because it will look bad for my podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I always listen to the show. I, I remember I, I listened to the show before I became mates with you, and I always learned a lot on it. And that's what I like on a pod because we try and do that in our show. Obviously, you want to entertain. You want to have a few jokes, this, that, and the other. But people are listening to our show knowing that it's going to be an hour long and you're going to get our thoughts on the biggest stories of any given race weekend. And that's World Superbikes, MotoGP. Everyone that works in our show is on the ground. So we've got someone at every World Superbike race. We've got someone at every MotoGP race. I'm at most of the Superbike tests. We've got Neil or David at most of the GP tests. So you've got boots on the ground and you've got the chance to really find out what's happening because that's what's important. And I think whenever, like I said earlier on, anyone listening to this is already a massive bike racing fan so you need to give them something that's going to increase their knowledge and uh, obviously greg that's where jace comes in that's the job of the the color commentators so uh he's got to try and make sure that uh, everyone's able to to pick up those little nuances and you just have to bring together what's happening in the moto america paddock mostly because that's your paddock and that's where you get insight that no one else can and that's what's important on any pod and that's what when we set ours up, it was at uh, Coda in 2015, and we were just sitting around, everyone's having a beer, and we were just chatting about what we learned that day. And someone at another table said to us, fuck, that's really interesting. I, I wish I was able to listen to more of that. And we were just kind of there like, oh, yeah, actually, we should do a podcast. And that's where ours came from. And <laughs> it's yeah, kind of the same with us, Greg. 300 yeah. and something oh, shows. Yeah. 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 We still do it though. We get on the phone for hours, talk about racing, and then and we laugh about it. Going, we we should have just done the podcast then. Yeah, because we like like especially on the mornings of our <laughs> podcast, Stevie, I'll run and grab a coffee, and I'll call G Dub because I'll get the rundown, and and I'll it, some days. What's best is when I don't look at the rundown. You know, I just get on and I click it, and then we start because we'll sit there and we'll talk for forty five minutes, and we're like, why didn't we just push play right now? And I'll be in my car or I'll be wherever. And, uh, and yeah, but it's, you know, I love listening to your guys' podcast because it does give us the knowledge. We're not, Greg and I aren't in that, in that, in that paddock, obviously world superbike or MotoGP. And so we kind of go by what we read and what we see. And, you know, we've got some connections and this and that, but you can learn a lot, you know, and that's again, even, you know, before we got to really be friends, I'd heard of the podcast and, and, um, and, and it's the same thing. You, you're trying to get that knowledge the best you can. And that's what GW and I try to do on ours is just try to give some of the knowledge that we have there. So yeah, it's good. And, and the illusion that Jason and I are friends. I think that's a big thing, you know, just try to really pull the wool over people's eyes and say, Oh, these guys really like each other and know each other. Yeah. Well, and yeah, finally, in that's a news presented by RI. <laughs> yeah, we're only in the news section. We haven't even got to the real part yet. No, I know. But let's talk Supercross yeah. Fantasy. All right, Jay. So you and I, you don't know this, but you and I have decided we're just going to do the Pulp MX Fantasy. So I haven't we talked have to you decided about it, that. Great. Yeah, we, yeah we're, we're doing Pulp MX Fantasy. I love uh, that one. Which, which is good news for Jason. Okay. Now, look, I, we know that Pulp MX Fantasy is a little bit more detailed. This is what I'm going to do. I'm literally going to go and get Supercross schedule, and I'm going to put 
alerts in my calendar basically to remind me an hour before like practice or whatever gets going. I can't remember the deadline, right? It's like basically whenever the evening program starts is when Pulp MX shuts down. Now for this year, minimum, the winner of our Pulp MX Fantasy League, which is the Greg's Garage Pod deal. It's all set up already, whatever. You can go make sure you join it. Uh, you're going to win a brand new Arai VX Pro 4 helmet of your choice. Of course, that's the motocross style helmet. And you're going to get a set of brand new Dunlop Q5s for your bike or give it away. Give it to your favorite track day rider. Second place will receive a set of Dunlop Q5s, which are wicked awesome track day rubber. And for third place, they're going to get a set of Q5Ss, which is that street version. So you have a nice street bike, sport bike, and this is new sizes, right? So this is everything from your Ninja 400s size all the way up to your big sport bikes with the big fat rear end 200, 200 size tire or whatever. So that's what you're going to get. So make sure you join us. Be thinking about it. It's the Pulp MX Fantasy League. It's fun. It takes a little bit of thought. We'll give you some inside information here. Of course, listen to the Pulp MX show. They'll give you good information as well because it's not just like 100% straightforward, but it does take some thinking. Steve, are you going to participate in this deal? I am always signing up for fantasy for one week only and then i forget about it completely i had mark marquez and my MotoGP fantasy team for pretty much the whole season <laughs> and then i remembered shit i'm signed up for that i better take him out i don't I, I don't think he's scoring that many points and then it turns out he was still scoring more points than most of the riders anyway so it was working out okay for me but i'm i'm great for signing up initially and then i just kind of just sit there and watch the race and then the, i actually i love for me, what I love about Supercross is I'm just a fan. I've got I've got no skin in the game. I don't know anything about motocross or supercross. I just watch the races and think that is that's cool. You know, so I'm excited for the supercross season to start just to be able to to get back to that. Because at the end of the day, whenever I'm watching Moto America, when I'm watching GP or Superbikes or BSB, you've got that much inherent knowledge from working in one paddock that it's just nice to look at something totally different and be a fan again. And that's what I love about Supercross. So I've obviously come to come over to JP about a month too early. Yes. I needed to be here for A1. Yeah, But uh, for some reason, flights were about three times as expensive at the start of January as they were at the start of December. So uh, this is when it had to be to come you out. You mean to come to California? Yep. Yeah, yeah. it's called weather, dude. Yeah, it's you know the yeah. thing. Uh, it's it's the called hard... New Year's Eve as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah New Year's. The hardest part for the, for you guys overseas, the Supercross starts in the middle of the night for you guys. It's kind of like our MotoGP because we're always like anybody that might be in our in our fantasy league that might be in Europe. They get to watch free practice three or free practice four before they make their picks, and we got to make our picks, you know, before we go to bed, sort of thing. And if somebody gets hurt in free practice three or free practice four, we can't change our teams because we're sleeping already. So. That makes it a little bit harder. But, Greg, I like the idea of pulp. I think it, it requires a little bit of thought. It's fun. It is hard, like Steve says, though. I, I agree. You've got to be a little bit active in that league. I know the RM Fantasy one that we've done before, you can kind of have the same team all year and you'd never know any different. But for this one, it's uh, – I do re- – you know, I know it requires a little bit of thought. So I mean, look, it's it's like – it's it's. I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of thirteen to $1,500 worth of prizes to win it. So yeah. a little bit of effort, you know what I mean? Like last thing you'd want is someone to put a team in, get lucky all year long, like in the, in the, um, RMX Correct. fantasy where you can just pick a team and leave it all year. And you could so get lucky I, and not even know that you want anything. Yeah. I mean, I mean it you could know, may, maybe way, we'll so. do it again with Johnny Ray. If he, cause he, he's the same th- way, 
you are, Steve. We talked Johnny Ray last year. He was in another league that we kind of did uh, through our uh, Patreon where people could sign up and, and play with Johnny. And that was the league where he could just leave it. The funny bit was, is that he ended up like changing something every week. Didn't he, Jay? Like he was, uh, he so, was into he was it. Really yeah, into he was it. great. He was. Yeah. Uh, so maybe we'll rope him into this one again, too. So, so, so going into that, G-Dub, let's, let's, you know, with Steve here, I, last night we left Palm Springs and it was funny. We were driving back. It's about a three and a half, four hour drive. And it's like, if I get a chance to corner Steve and talk World Superbike, it's great. And now, now I got a week of him. So I'll get all the information I need. But. You know what's funny is is we're going to talk a little bit about World Superbike and Steve. You know we're forty minutes in forty minutes into this, and so I think what I'd like to do when we start talking about World Superbike is just quickly kind of run through the state of a few of the teams. I don't want to get into such crazy details of, of everything, but just kind of what we saw this year and moving forward into next year. Um, you look at the Ducati team right off the bat, and I think if we could just kind of summarize things. In short, with each kind of team that we're looking at, to see what our expectations are, you know, in December leading into next year. Now, I know we'll probably have you on here before the opener at Phillip Island, and we might learn some more things once these guys get to start testing again because we're in the testing ban, I believe, right now. Is that right? We're in the testing ban time period, right? The second. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, well, we've um, got we've got another test next week, actually, and then we go into it for Christmas break, really, because it's a shortened winter. Um, They've basically gotten rid of a lot of the testing restrictions to make sure everyone's okay. So BMW, Honda, uh, the Yamaha teams, they're all out on track next week at Haref. That's right. And and well, let's let's start with the Ducati. Obviously, it's been a big year for them. It's going to be a year that Ducati's going to circle on their calendar for for the years to come, uh, winning MotoGP, obviously, and then going and winning World Superbike. We've got Batista and Rinaldi coming back. Also on Ducatis, we got Pisani. We've got um, Petrucci now. Over there as well, this new Ducati, uh, I don't know much about it, if I'm being honest. I don't know if, how much you know about it either, but they're taking a bike that is already good. Presumably, they don't go backwards. They're going to make it better, um, and I think it depends on what other manufacturers can and will do. Ducati going into 2023 with Batista is going to be strong again. Just kind of curious to get your end-of-the-season feels on things, what you hear in the paddock. You brought some insight to me yesterday, and you and I are definitely in alignment on how we look, how Ducati is handling the conversation of the Ducati is better than everything else. It's a, it's an interesting take that they've taken on certain aspects of it. Your thoughts on going into 23? Yeah, I think if you were looking at it as like a quick hit, you look at Ducati, the best bike, you look at Yamaha, the best rider, you look at Kawasaki with Johnny's side of the garage, the best team, you look at Honda the best progress that they've that any team made and then you look at bmw as must do better and i think that's a pretty fair assessment of where everything is right now because i don't think i don't think if you if you if you've been able to look at the full season that anyone could dispute that ducati is categorically the best bike on the grid it can do things other bikes can't do it's got lots of riders that are always able to get to the front and it's not because you know i think rinaldi and bassani are good riders i think they've been able to get really good results because the bike allows that. Philip Ertel's had weekends whenever he's looked quite impressive. That's right, another guy. Javi yeah. Fares, even though he jumped in at the end of the season, had one weekend that he, he was quite good. So there's a lot of things there that show you a picture about the Ducati. Yeah. And when you look at the other bikes, you don't see that. You, know, you look at where's the, the second Ducati, the second Yamaha, the second Kawasaki, 
and then you're looking at BMW and Honda will just take them out of the equation right now because the Honda worked well at four or five tracks. BMW worked well at four or five tracks. They've got to make a lot of progress to get themselves where over a full season, they're more competitive, but they'll get there with that. Yeah. But when you look at Yamaha versus Ducati versus Kawasaki, for my money, over the last two years, if I was any team manager in the world, Toprak's the rider I want on my bike. I think he is absolutely phenomenal. He's been really consistent. The start of this season wasn't easy for him, but from Mizano onwards, he was the best rider in superbikes again. So we know how good he is. Johnny's a six times world champion, so we know how good Ray and Kawasaki are. But whenever I'm looking at Ray being unable to pass Bassani, even though he's way faster than him in Argentina, yeah. can't make a move. You look at so many times in races this year when riders got bottled up by the Ducati. You look at the moves that Bautista was able to make. And, and this isn't taking anything away from Alvaro because in say Indonesia, he didn't have to overtake riders. He just had to ride around and win a world championship. He was still making moves there. And it was the first time this year where we saw him make a lot of moves that weren't just on a, on a straight. You know, he was making moves through corners, under break and different things. The rest of the season, he's been able to make effectively easy overtaking moves. And obviously, he's a really good rider. He's a world champion, 125s. He could have won a 250 world championship. He had podiums in MotoGP. He's a really good rider. But it comes back to a little bit like what Greg was talking about earlier on, about all the riders in MotoGP. There's levels for riders. There's your top tier riders. There's your second tier riders. And then there's the rest of your field. The second tier riders on their day can be really good and they can win races, but can they do that 36 times a year? Probably not. That's why they're in that next tier down. But some of those guys can have that one season that's magic. And I'm not saying that's Alvaro Bautista, but everything came together for Bautista. We had two years of him on a Honda to see what he was like on a different bike. He wasn't this rider. And some of that comes down to the package, the team around him, the bike. But you also have to look at it and say, and he's had two years on the Ducati, should have won two world championships. So you don't have, you know, four years bookended like that, and then two years where you can't keep the bike upright. So the middle ground for Alvaro is probably where he is, which is that he's a very good rider, and he took his perfect opportunity to win his world championship in superbikes. And fair play to him. You can't take anything away from him because he didn't make mistakes this year. But if I'm a team manager, is he my the one guy that I want to have on that bike? Or do I want to look at it and say, I want Top Rack, I want Johnny, I want you know X, Y, Z. And I think if you were to put everyone under a truth serum in the Superbike World Championship, none of them are going to say, I need to have Alvaro rather than Top Rack on my bike. And again, that's not saying Alvaro's a bad rider. It's just how good Top Rack is. Well, I, I, there's a few things that I look at with that, and, and maybe coming from a rider's perspective. Um, to go back to a couple things, when we start talking about Alvaro passing people, the guys that I think that he never passed, in my opinion, that I don't remember recalling. You obviously would a lot more. I just don't remember seeing him pass Top Rack and Johnny or anybody at the very, very sharp end on a weekend. Um, I don't really remember him outbreaking guys or going by guys in corners. I, I, you know, there's a few things that I look at there. You talked about Indonesia. Um, and, and look, Alvaro took advantage of the package he had underneath him. I, I give him that all day long. But even the race in Australia where he went out on slicks and everybody else in the Super Bowl race, the majority of the passes he made, Steve, were down that front straightaway because you can't go offline when there's a dry line and there's a wet line and, and such. And that place dries quickly, and I get that. But he was able to do what he was able to do because of how fast the bike was. Fair, I, and again, 
I don't want to sound bitter or take anything away from Alvaro to win a world championship, to be there for every race, to withstand the pressure of dealing with Johnny and Top Rack for me is key. Um, when I look at Johnny and I look at Top Rack, I, I don't know if I could specif- specifically say I couldn't really specify one better than the other. I look at the Cowie right now as it's the third or fourth best bike on the grid. I think the Cowie is way more um, antiquated than than what Ducati has. I think Yamaha made a jump, but even those guys, I think Top Rack's under a huge disadvantage. Top Rack has changed the climate of what superbike racing is because of his ability to break the way he does, because of his ability to be able to withstand that over a length of a race, because it's very physically demanding to ride that way. I think that's why Kawasaki made the changes they made to their motorcycle last year so that Johnny could get into the corners closer to what Top Rack does. So I think when you look at the top three, the next thing you brought up, which I loved, and you and I had this discussion last night, let's look at the secondary riders of each one of these teams, the Rinaldis, the Locatellis, Alex Lowe's, um, I guess Vierge and uh, and Ikola Lacuona. You look at, the BMW guys that are kind of the guys signed behind Reading, Vandemark, Baz. <clears throat> I think without question, if you look at secondary riders, the guy that stepped up the most this year was Alex. You and I talked about how closer, how much closer he got to Johnny. And for the rest of them, I asked you last night about Vandemark. Will he come back to the to the person he was? He's had some big injuries and things. Secondary riders, though, I, I think that that Al did a great job. Uh, yeah, and I, I couldn't dispute that because I think when you look at the season, he didn't make many mistakes. He, I remember him crashing in Catalonia. He had a crash in Aragon. Most. And then Assam was a disaster, but there was technical issues there. Yeah. Most, he was incredibly sick. you know. And those things yeah. can happen over the course of a season. Riders get sick, riders get injured. You forget about it once they're on the bike because guess what? They have to do their job. And it's it's a harsh reality. But yeah, like you have to try and keep it in mind when you're assessing things. But once they've decided that they're fit enough to race, they also have to be fit enough to do their job. And, you know, I think overall he did a really good job this season. He's closer than we've ever seen any teammate to Johnny in terms of single lap pace, even Tom Sykes. And that was when you had a Q tire, which Tom could just extract the absolute most out of. Johnny suddenly become an awful lot better over a single lap. The way that that qualifying system has evolved he's gotten better at that but you've got someone like alex that's always within a tenth of a second of him or out qualifying him yeah you have it where in races their pace isn't that dissimilar he's closer to johnny than most teammates would be i think so i think yep. he's done a really good job to step up i actually think Ronaldo did a great job this year because it's always easy to look at the guy that wins the world championship wins all those races God, his teammate must be really rubbish if he's not won 10 races this year and finished second in the World Championship because we talk so much about the advantages that Bautista has. I'll tell you what, Rinaldi did really well this year because his job was to make sure Ducati win the World Championship and he finishes fourth, mm. and he did that. So all the talk about let's get rid of Rinaldi and bring in someone else, I thought was, I thought was really unfair on him because he did everything that he had to do. And unless you're bringing in someone like Petrucci, you know, two-time MotoGP race winner, you know, someone with that proven CV, this, that, and the other, you can understand why Ducati would look to make a move like that. I think it was great that they didn't. I think it was great yeah. that he's going to have to prove himself in World Superbikes on an independent bike because from the outside looking in at, a, at Moto America, 
He was great at Coda, a track that he knows inside out, a big Grand Prix-style track that the Ducati should be very good at. Everything else I saw through the course of the season, other than in wet races, when we know Petrucci's really good in the rain, it, Gagne just looked like he had an edge on him. And that's where, for Danilo, he needs to come in next year and show, you know what, I'm still the guy that won two MotoGP races, I can do this in Superbikes. I think he's going to get a rude awakening in Worlds because the depth of field that you have in World Superbike now is so strong. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's going to be some moaning there, I think. And I, you know, when you look at it, it's, I brought this up the other week, I think on the podcast, G-Dub, that when you sit there and you look at a guy like Danilo, it's it's so, inc- like, the guy that, it's going to sound crazy to you probably, but the guy that really impressed me overall in the whole package of the of the every race series that you can look at this year, I thought Cal Crutchlow did amazing stepping in after Davizioso. And I sit there and I think, how many Grand Prix has he won? Probably half a dozen, I'd have to say. He's won a World Super Sport Championship. He's won in World Superbike. I mean, this is, when you look at somebody like Cal, <clears throat> it's amazing that Danilo gets as much as he does um, as far as recognition goes. And you look at a guy like Cal, who has done more and, and accomplished more. Um, and I also think that when you look at Danilo coming into World Superbike, he is going to have to fight now. He's going to have to fight 10 Jake Gagne's. And I think the big thing for him was being able to get back on a Ducati, on Pirelli's, getting the technical support. It's going to be interesting now if he gets everything that <clears throat> he didn't necessarily have over here. I think that the Dunlops were a step. He had a great conversation with us about the differences between what he dealt with over there and what he had to deal with over here. Getting the technical support that he needed over here was another issue. And, and look, as a rider, I understand all that. I realize that when you look at some of these secondary rides on in-world Superbike, being able to have a team that can cohesively work together so that both your riders can get the same things out of a motorbike is so is so crucial. And again, we spoke about this last evening is you can only be you're only going to be as good as the people you have working on the bike. You're only going to be as good. We, we talked a little bit about Honda. Um and I, and I don't know who Danilo is going to have on 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 that side of things. It's, it appears that Ducati wants to help take care of him a little. So, well, the quite the question I have, Jay, is is what role is Petrucci going to play inside the World Superbike paddock? Because if you look at MotoGP, Ducati has eight riders, Steve, but Johan Zarco is the one who's been the test rider. You know, people look at Johan Zarco and they go, "Wow, he was trash at the at the second half of the season," but Zarco is the one who tests in race. You know, and so. Like, I'm sitting there going, like, I know what Petrucci's role was here in the United States, right? It was to come here, win races, possibly win the championship. But also, it was more. He was he was working for Ducati Corsa to help develop what's going to be a future Pentagali version, something that's going to be more compliant on other tires other than a Pirelli. So my question is, with this Barney deal with Petrucci, does he become more of a test rider for the factory team being able to test things. Is there enough even to test in World Superbike, Steve, that makes sense? Or is do you feel that this is just one of the rides and Petrucci's just another rider going for a world championship? Like, how do you think his role is going to play out? His role is, in his mind, to be the world champion. He's good enough to. He's got the talent to be able to win a championship. He's got the right bike underneath him. It's up to him to show that he's dedicated enough. It's up to him to show he's hard work. And it's up to him to show that he's able to get the job done because for for Alvaro Bautista the thing with Bautista that no one can doubt 
is how much he puts into it. He's incredibly hard work and he works really well with his crew, his electronics guys, his crew chief. He trains like an animal. Like a lot of the time, Ducati stay in the same hotel as Dorna. So when you're, uh, I'm go, uh, going to the gym at half seven before I go to work. So just for a half an hour, just to do something. Why do they serve free coffee? He's in the gym? just finishing his workout. <laughs> they do. They've actually got a really good smoothie system in some of the gyms because Dorna put us up in really nice hotels. But he's finishing his workout and he's been in there since six o'clock in the morning because that's what he views it takes. Now, I'm not saying he's the only rider. Every rider trains hard now, but it's you see that from him. That's what Petrucci needs to do because, again, from the outside looking in, it didn't look like he did that in America. He didn't look like he was half as fit as he was in MotoGP. It was almost one of those things where I can go here and take it easy. It's a year over in the States. You know, There's a lot to like about over here. And uh, I think it seemed from the outside looking in, that was a big issue. He's going to have to step that up in Worlds because everyone is not only at Gagne's level, they're all at that top level. All those guys could be in MotoGP and they wouldn't be making up the numbers. They're all talented and fast and they've got everything to tick all the boxes. He's going to have to do that. I think what is going to be interesting, JP mentioned that who's he going to work with? I have a, a sneaking suspicion it's going to be Giovanni Krupe, who had been Scott Redding's crew chief. Last year, he was that liaison between Ducati Corsa and the Supersport teams for the, the new Supersport bike, and then also on the Superbike program. I'd be very surprised if he's not working with Petrucci next year. Uh, he was here. He was here working with Petrucci the last two rounds, I think, Jay, yeah. at least yeah. for sure the last round. So, yeah, there was some controversy that Krupe decided to drum up inside the paddock with the Dunlop. That was hilarious, but... I could see that relationship happening. I mean, he's look, Petrucci's a Ducati guy. He speaks the language, not meaning Italian. I mean, he speaks Ducati. He knows he's, you know, he's worked on the development of, you know, the of this bike and the development of that bike and blah, 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 blah. Like he's been around, done a lot of stuff. So it's gonna be interesting to see what he does. But Steve, let's talk about some other moving forward, looking forward into the crystal ball. Um, you have a Gerda coming up on a Yamaha, you have uh, you know, Gerloff switching over to BMW. I, there's a lot of new things looking down the road. With some of the changes that you see in riders and teams and all this kind of stuff, who's your pick to do the best of what's changing? Um, if I was to pick someone, I'd pick Brad Ray coming in from BSB because the expectation is so low for what Ray can do with the Moto X team. And that's a that's a good team and they're going to put together a good bike, the package is going to be all right. And because the expectation is so low, if he comes off with top six finishes, picks up a couple of podiums, he's going to look like a legend. And when you look at all the other Yamaha riders, the expectation is two pad of Yamahas, GRT bikes, maybe um, probably the GMT bike will be perceived as being better teams, better packages than what Ray has. So if he's able to outperform any of the riders above him, then he's going to look really good. So if I'm to pick someone that when we get to the end of next season and we say like, oh, who impressed you most? I think Brad Ray is going to be the rider that exceeds people's expectation by the biggest amount. And that's mostly because the expectation is so low because he's only doing the European rounds. He's going to a team that with Tamburini had a couple of top 10 finishes this year. There's absolutely no pressure on him. He's there to learn and he's willing to step away from winning a British championship to making sure he's in the world championship because he understands that guess what if you're not in that paddock no one's going to give you a ride 
So if he's got nine rounds next year, try and make an impact. He needs to make sure that they count. Do you think that he has, Ray, has the future of BSB riders in World Superbike on his shoulders because there has been chatter over the years that BSB doesn't have electronics. They don't come prepared to World Superbike like Gerloff came prepared to World Superbike because of the sophistication and level of electronics we have in Moto America. So do you feel that there's some of that pressure, though, that's on his shoulders as well? There is the pressure more so because BSB is the biggest domestic championship in the world. Uh, and the the pressure is, is that actually a good championship? It's been the best part of 10 years since a rider came in from BSB and established themselves in World Superbikes. So for Ray, that's what the pressure is. It's nothing about experience, talent, this, that, and the other. He's going to learn electronics. He's going to be with a team that knows all about those things as well. So he'll figure all that out as long as he gets enough preseason testing, he gets himself fully up to speed. So I think that for him, the pressure is to show that you've still got to look to Britain for that next rider. Rory Skinner's coming across to Moto2, and he's going to have that pressure and expectation because, again, like Brad Ray, he's a rider that whenever he was coming up through the Red Bull Rookies Cup, CEV, and everything, all the way through, everyone talked about how talented he was. Now he needs to prove how talented he is, and that's only going to help BSB if he can do it. Going to Moto2 is a massive risk. Going to Moto2 with that team is a massive risk, yeah. as as Cambobia found out. So I think that that's where, for Brad Ray, I think that he's the rider that's going to be able to show what BSB riders are capable of. But the problem for BSB is that riders aren't going into the Superbike route. The young riders are going into British Talent Cup, European Talent Cup, Moto3, and trying to be a Grand Prix rider. So you don't have it where people are actually being trended into the Superbike paddock because 300s, Super Twins over in the US, are these helping to develop the next generation of rider? That's what the next few years are going to be really important to show, that you can become a Manuel Gonzalez, someone that's come in, won races, won a championship in 300s, moves on to Supersport, does really well, wins races, challenges for a championship, finishes top three in the world, and then goes to Moto2 and does a good job. We need to see more riders come from the 300 background to do what Gonzalez did. Otherwise, he's just going to be that flash in the pan, that one rider that could do it. And that's the big challenge for all those development series, whether, and, and none of them want to look at themselves like a development series. That's the funny thing, because you have it where Taz McKenzie's going to go to World Supersport next year. He's going from being a British Supersport champion, a BSB champion, racing a superbike, to stepping back in the perception of a lot of fans to be on a Supersport. Like even though it's a world championship, just to get over there, just the to get over there, right? See, I mean, that's crazy. Just part. to get over there, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Good for him. And, and and the thing with it is, Taz is a really talented rider. He's gonna be successful on a super sport bike if he's on the right package. And if you are quick on the super sport bike, you win races, you challenge for a world championship, you'll get a chance on a super bike. Would he get that chance if he jumped onto an MIE Honda super bike? Probably not, because over the course of the last two years, they haven't shown anything that shows that they're going to be able to let you show how good you can be. Taddy Mercado is a great rider. Jay, when you went to Hereta in Portimao last year, he was one of the main guys that you were talking about and impressing. Yeah. But it's very hard to impress people when you're 21st. When you're on a... Wait, well, McKenzie, again, it's... If he goes out and races, right. he impresses. Yeah, you're, you're 100% right. And it's it's interesting because Taddy, to me, when I, when I sat trackside, there were two guys that... <clears throat> There was two guys that surprised me. You know, you take the Johnnies and the Top Racks and Rinaldi's and the Lowe's. Those guys already impress you. There was two guys that I sat trackside. And Jerez is so great, G-Dub, because you can literally 
the outside ring road at, at Jerez is literally 15 feet from the track. You can almost, it's, it's crazy how close you can get. And Batista and Taddy Mikado were the two that impressed me the most. I just couldn't believe, I, I could see how hard Mikado was trying and Batista as well. Let's go back real quick. There's one guy we haven't really talked about that I'd like to just get your perspective on. Former World Superbike champion, goes back to BSB, then comes back now to British, uh, comes back to World Superbike on the Bacchetti Kawasaki. Tom Sykes um, does all of his own management, does all of his own managing as far as where he's going to be. Obviously, Paul Bird and the Ducati team have two new riders next year. Both Josh Brooks and Sykes are gone. Sykes finds himself back in World Superbike on the Pachetti Kawasaki, taking Lucas Maya's spot. I mean, it's a weird move to me. It's a move where you go. Tom Sykes was racing World Superbike when I was racing World Superbike. I I say that he was a wild card at Brands Hatch, and I believe it was 2008 when I was over there. So he's been in the paddock essentially 14 years. It's a long time for a rider to then leave and come back. I mean, what are realistic expectations for a guy like Tom Sykes? Top 10s? Top 15s? What are we expecting? I It's so difficult to say what you're expecting with Tom because it's so competitive at the front. Tom's a world champion. Could have won three world championships. But you're also going back 10 years for that. That's right. And the game has moved on an awful lot since then. And I think that the last season he was in Superbikes on the BMW, he was actually very impressive that season to be able to manage the tyre an awful lot better than he had up to that point. He raced very well. Obviously, he qualifies well. Tom's unbelievable for a single lap. Yeah. But what's he going to do on the Kawasaki with Pichetti? Is he going to outperform Ray? No. We've saw, we've seen him on the same bike as Johnny, not able to beat him in the same team with all the team having been built around them. So he's not going to beat Johnny. Is he going to beat Alex? I don't think so because Alex has shown himself that he's really close to Johnny at different times now. So over the course of a full season, Tom's going to be the third the third Kawasaki rider which is going to place him behind at least two Yamahas, you'd imagine. Probably two, maybe three Ducatis, a Honda. You know, So Couple you're looking cars, at it and you're yeah. saying, when you put all those pieces in, in, mm-hmm. in, in, in place, he's 10th, 11th, 12th. So if Tom finishes top 10 in the championship, he's actually done a really good job. Yeah, you know, you said... Your expectations you, for him. Yeah. But is it worth coming back for that? That's the big question. It's, and the thing with this, why is he back there? Because riders can't give up. Well, the hardest thing is it's it's so you always think you're going to make the difference as a rider. It's the worst feeling because you sit there and you think, what can I bring to this team? Well, I've seen what this guy's done on that bike. You know, you know, Steve, the funny thing is, is we haven't even mentioned the guy's name. Nobody even talks about the guy, but Remy Gardner's coming to world Superbike next year. And that's got to be a little bit of a boost. I mean, world Superbike next year is going to be so great because you got Dominic Agurta who, Greg and I, I mean, you and I go back and forth on race weekends when you're over there. And I have been completely, what's the word? It's such a strange feeling because you go, oh, In Dominic Gerda stepping. No, yeah, I mean, maybe no. You look at you look at Gerda, his no, racecraft right. in super sport is that's Rins. You're in love with Rins. That's right. Yeah. If you look at if you look at Dominica Goethe in the world super sport, I have said on this podcast, Steve, that if you're a young kid and you want to learn about racecraft, Go back and watch the last two years of World Super Sport with Agurta. He's been able to do it so many different ways. He's the smartest guy out there. He's got the pace. He knows what he has. He can save his equipment. He's raced against all the same guys, and he learns about his competition and knows what he's got when he races them. 
It's going to be arguably he should have won four world championships the last two years. He had that one taken away from him, Moto E, um, when he when uh, when he got into it with um, gosh, Jordi Torres at, at Mizano in Moto E. So, but you look at Remy Gardner, this is a guy that's gone from Moto 2 world champ, signs a Moto GP contract, essentially gets flushed out, and now he finds himself in world superbike with a good team. I think I think that team's really really good. It's another guy, you know, when when you talk about where Sykes going to end up, there could be four Yamahas again ahead of him, three Ducatis, two Cowies. I mean, you, you you maybe a Honda, like you say. It's so deep over there right now. But where's Remy Gardner in your expectations for the year? Nobody is talking about him. I think the reason no one's talking about him is that there's. There's more interest than stories, unfortunately. Yeah. And Remy, once he comes in, is going to be a really interesting subplot of the season. But that's what he is. He's a subplot. Yeah. And that's because he's a rookie. You don't know how he's going to adapt to production by... He's a world champion. Yeah. And he was unbelievable that year to win the championship. Fernandez was really good that year as well. Both of them went up to MotoGP and both of them had a miserable season because they weren't wanted. They weren't loved. GRT is a good team to go into because they're quite tightly knit. Remy might be Australian, but he's been in Spain for so long that he's half European. So he's going to fit in quite nicely with that team. He's fluent in Spanish. So he's going he's gonna to understand quite a bit of Italian right from the outset and be able to communicate with his team. And then he'll learn Italian and he'll be fine. And he'll really fit in well with that group of, team, group of, group of people. He's a fast rider. But his Moto2 championship season is the outlier of his career as well. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of that comes down to the fact that it was the one season that he was with IO, and we know how good IO are in the Moto2 class. It was the one season where he had that top team and he got the job done. Yeah. Now it's up to him to show that that one season is the real Remy Gardner and not all the other seasons where you saw a very fast rider that made mistakes. Yeah. Now he needs to make sure that he's able to get podiums, win a race, because... The comparison to make for him is the expectation that we all had for Garrett Gerloff over the last couple of years. So he needs to be a podium man. He needs to be the second Yamaha. He needs to win races. And then he needs to be able to show that if Toprak goes to MotoGP, I'm the man. And that's what all those Yamaha riders have. The Yamaha Cup next season is going to be one of the most interesting things to keep an eye on. Six of them, huh? I mean, there's six that I can... There's, you know, you got the four main ones and then you got Baldessari... And then you're going to have uh, Bradley Ray, like you said, he won't be doing the flyaways, but he's going to do the whole European season, which getting your perspective on that was amazing. And I thought that was great. Um, when you look at this, this, this team though, with Agarda and, and uh, Remy, they've got to feel like they've won the lottery a little bit. They're getting two world champions that are proven on these bikes. I mean, Nazani was nothing for two years there. I mean, absolutely just gone. So they're, they're replacing him. And then, and Garrett obviously had his struggles big time since his incident with Top Rack at Assen in 2021. Hasn't been himself. Maybe a change of scenery will do him well. Don't know about that either. But I think that there's so much intrigue in your series that it's going to be a lot of fun uh, for you and Alex next year to be calling those races. Steve, let me get your take on this. Chavi Forez, he is being talked about coming here in the U.S., riding basically Josh Heron's vacated super sport bike if Heron ends up getting Petrucci's seat or whatever. What is your assessment of him and how do you think he would do in super sport in the U.S.? 
think he'd do great on a superbike. I think he'd do a lot better than Josh Heron will do on the superbike. So if I was Ducati, I'd be trying to keep it where Heron stays on a super sport bike and you bring Fares onto a superbike, or you bring in a Taddy Mercado or someone like that with a lot of experience. Heron, it might well be in his contract that if he win, when he wins the championship, he's guaranteed to be on the superbike. But I think that if you were putting him against Fares, I think Fares over the course of a season could do a better job. And I'd love to see Xavi go somewhere to be able to win races again, race at the front, because he's a very good rider. He's very hard working. And he's a nice guy to have in a paddock as well. He's he's done a fair bit of media work this year as well. He worked for Eurosport in the Superbike class. And uh, he turned up to Estoril as a commentator, well, a pundit. And uh, on Friday morning, he was told, do you have any leathers with you, Xavi? And uh, he was put on to Philip Ertl's bike. So... Uh, He's 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 really good and adaptable, and I'd like to see him have a chance to win races. Same as for Taddy, because when Taddy went into the IDM this year, he was immediately at the front of the field, got his confidence back, because there's nothing worse than turning up to a race, turning up to anything, and uh, knowing that you're going to be the guy at the back of the field. Like I turned up to play golf with JP and all of his mates, and I knew coming into it, fuck, I'm just going to lose this. doesn't matter how many shots these guys <laughs> give me. They're just better than me. And they're better prepared than me. And that's what someone like Mercado must have been feeling this season because that's a very tough position for a rider to be in because they're putting so much into it. And I'd love to see riders like that get a chance to be successful. And that's taking nothing away from someone like Josh Heron. He rode really well this year. But I think if I was making a decision and the decision comes down to who's going to win you races, who's going to win you a championship, I think having that superbike rider with that experience is going to do a better job. And then you've already got Heron that's doing a great job on a super sport bike but obviously it doesn't work like that riders want to be on a super bike teams want to move them up show that the promotion for success is there so i think if if Fares goes to america i'd love to see him on a super sport bike uh, sorry super bike if he goes on the super sport bike i'd be a little bit disappointed mm. it's a tough one i'm sure for the ducati team here in the u.s because you know you look at a guy like just, Aaron. just just tied to that as well greg yeah just to add to that as well I also know how crap it is when people from outside your paddock talk down the riders that have had success in your paddock. And I don't want that to seem to be the case for me with Aaron because he rode really well this year. But on the other side of that, I also know how good someone like Flores is and what he could do in, in the super wide class for you. Yeah. But you know, the thing is, is like, if you really kind of break down the numbers of a guy like Petrucci, you have to kind of ask yourself, how well do I rate Petrucci as a rider? And you go, okay, he didn't know the tires with that particular bike. It didn't work all that well. And if you look at his second race results versus his first race results, because we do race one Saturday, race two on Sunday, Petrucci, uh, you know, he was much better on Sunday after getting more track time because we don't have a ton of track time. So I think if you're the Ducati team in the U.S., you're looking at a guy like Karen who won your championship, who had a great 2018 wouldn't you say, Jason, I mean, you got to give Heron a nod when he was on Stamboli's attack bike in 18, showed up fit. He had a really good season. He was competitive up front. He gave Tony Elias and some other riders some fits. So I think it's a tough decision. I think the decision of listening to what Petrucci was complaining about with the Ducati all year internally is probably part of the decision that the Ducati team has to make. And you just you just can't necessarily take a, a great rider and plug him into the bike and expect him to go win a championship. I think that also... The way Gagne's season started at the beginning of the year left the door open for Petrucci to lead that championship for quite a while when 
you know, had Gagne had more of a solid start at the beginning, we probably wouldn't have had the championship that we had in terms of. There was a lot of things that played into our championship going to the final round this year, Stephen. We never got to see Petrucci and Gagne battle head to head ever in the dry. Never got to see it because it never really was a battle. Um, And it got to the point where at the end, you know, I think that the the Warhorse team and they were praying for rain because I knew what that guy would do in the rain. He was simply amazing to watch in the rain at a place like New Jersey that just isn't what he did to those guys going into turn one on the opening lap where everybody's sitting up and he's still barreling off into turn one. Um, he was obviously incredibly, incredibly good there. So I, you know, I just think that there's a lot of things when you start talking about Josh Heron, if you were to ask people to, a, to the person, they're going to tell you that he has got so much incredible talent. Like, yep. but, but a lot of, a lot of Josh's stuff in my opinion is, the importance of certain things in his life and where he's at and what he's doing. It's off now the bike. It's, a, it's off the bike. It's, I it's, think right? everything's off the bike. He How do you prioritize he being different. a racer? Yeah. He's different there because talent wise, I have seen him do things on a bike at a track day where Josh Hayes and I have both sat there talking to each other and gone. Neither. I mean, can't even do it. There, there's stuff that you see where you go, wow, like he can do certain things and he's absolutely incredible. The, the saddest part for me is Josh doesn't know how good he is and how good, how much better he could be. Like he literally could be better, which is incredible to think about because of the talent that he has. Um, but I think that, that there's off the bike stuff that is more important or more key to him that he keys in on. Um, that's more important to him. So that's a whole nother thing. Um, but yeah, so well, it's good having Steve's going to be here with me for the week, G Dub, and uh, dude, I'm, I'm so sorry. In. Listen, there are direct gonna, flights right from it. L.A. to Raleigh. If you Look, know, if it you, you don't want to go to know, Raleigh, yeah, you just you just go jump east. on the plane. I'm 15 minutes from the airport. I'll pick you up nice, nice. You don't have to take the Uber. You don't have to pay yeah. the toll to get down here. No. How good's the golf then there though? That's that's the question because that's why playing golf. Well, listen, it's been raining three days, so I'm sure that the the greens are going to be nice and plush. Yeah, no, uh, let me tell you, Steve, if you head we'll be, back there, we'll be 68 you're be, degrees here tomorrow. It'll be nice. He's going to be he's going to be putting an apple on your head trying to shoot it off with a bow. It's better than gonna, Ireland, let's put it that way. <laughs> and you're going to be well, watching Call of Duty and eating Skittles. That's Dude, what you, you're going to be doing. You want to know what happened if you yesterday? go back to the G-Dub? Not really, so I, but go I ahead made, and give it to I us. made the big decision to buy a new bow <laughs> for this year, okay? And and mm. just but it's the same kind of style of bow and brand that I won my championships with in 19, so I was like, "All right, I'm buying it." I get a call from the uh, from the shop, and they were like, "All right, it's four to six weeks out." This was like a couple of days ago, so I'm like, "Okay." He calls me yesterday, or sends me a text yesterday morning, and says, "Dude, I don't know why, but your bow is here." Oh. And I was like, "Get out of town! Get out!" Of t-. And I like cleared everything. It's an hour and a half drive, so I drive down to the shop. I get there, and he had just left to go to the bank, like the owner. So I wait half hour and stuff. He shows up. It's like I got it right here. We take it out. I look at it. I'm like, "Wow, man, thing looks good. The the quality is great. This is exactly what I want." I draw it back and I'm like, cool. And I'm looking up at this part called the cam and I'm like, that's the wrong cam, man. It's a medium draw can and I need a long draw. And I was like, I drove all the way down there three hours around trip for nothing. Never got so it. Bummed. But now, hey, you, 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 we, we had a great discussion about you riding to the races this year. And I just was having a good conversation with Steve in the van last night. <clears throat> and so you didn't ride there. huh? You, you didn't ride. You didn't ride to go get your bow. You actually drove. No, car. my my Royal Enfield is in pieces at a buddy's house. You know what oh, they say, man? Yeah. The bro deal, the bro deal is the slow yeah. deal. Right? Yeah. So, my buddy's yeah. had the bike all summer long and I'm still waiting. I got a cam in it. It's making, you know, 20 20% more horsepower. So there I you go, the Steve. Thing this is goes right into our conversation, doesn't it? 30, 
30 horsepower now. That's awesome. Yeah, Good job. It, this, seems, this seems very, very similar to what I was told last night. Oh, right? it's, pain, it, it's painful. I might, Let I've me tell you about, the other thing. I've been thinking about doing it again, by the way, JP. Uh, ride yeah. of the races. Thinking I told him that every race, every race that you rode to the races, I'd be like, I hope it rains on you the whole way there. And you'd be uh, like, JP, he'd call me from the bike with his cardo system. And he'd be like, Jay, it's pouring rain on me right now. And I'm like, yeah, you keep enjoying that. So, Hey, hey English. Ain't- I, I have to just say that the only thing I want to know is how much the mileage is. What are you getting paid for your mileage? Yes, that's uh, making this justifiable to you. Fifty-eight cents a mile. That's tax write-off. <laughs> I get paid nothing, man. I just did it for content. Which, of course, I got so tired in that ride and was riding so much, I didn't produce half of it. I still have half the content to produce <laughs> that I never did. But I mean, yeah, there were some stressful times, like 118 degrees or something coming back from the yeah. ridge on you Sunday. Had was winds, I remember you had some rain. You had it all. You had it all. I had, yeah, I had everything but snow. Everything I think I got hit with. But you snow. had gas mileage issues because the thing didn't go oh, far. I ran out of gas twice. Yeah. All kinds of good stories, Stevie. And I'm sitting there thinking. I'm happy enough, to, you know. I'm happy enough to take a plane to wherever I'm going and be home the night after the races. I, I can't, you know. I was going to just ask that though, JP. Whenever you're sitting there in a nice reclining <laughs> seat, in the first class on a United flight back home, oh. and you're thinking, you know what? I'm going to be back in my bed tonight, and then I'm going to be out in the golf course at ten o'clock tomorrow morning. Stevie, are you hey. thinking to yourself? Oh. I really wish it would take me four days to get back home. You, you gotta love him. I mean, look. G-Dub is, is literally one of my best friends, and I just love him to death. But there were times when I would think to myself, I have got to get from this booth out to my car, and it's pouring rain. And then I would see Greg suiting up in rain gear. I'd be like, you know what? The 10 seconds it's going to take me to get to my car, maybe 50 seconds with my ankle, the, the, the time it's going to take me to get to my car is nothing compared to what this poor guy is about ready to go endure. So... You know, bless him for doing it all. He was he, he, look. He, I had one. I had one incident talk. where where I was stressful, Steve. <laughs> I was in the middle of North Dakota. No, I was in the middle of South Dakota, and I was. And the roads are pretty straight, pretty boring. And I just saw this dirt road, and I go, "I'm going for it." It was it was a gravel road, and I'm bombing down this road, but it's relatively flat, so I can kind of see off in the distance the direction I'm heading in. And then the gravel road, which was clear starts to get some foliage in the middle. You know what I mean? Some weeds in the middle. And then they started growing closer and it's double lane went down to single lane. And the next thing you know, I am like in the middle of this field and I get to a, a I get to a, like a fence and I take a left and I go, brah, brah, brah. And the thing hits a mud puddle and buries itself up to the axles. <laughs> and I, was, I had no cell signal. I had nobody with me. And I got that feeling in my stomach, man. I'm like, wow, I'm going to die in the middle of this field. There wasn't a house anywhere to be found. And man, I just did everything I possibly could. You want to talk about a sweaty mess of never taking the helmet off, never taking the gear off, getting sticks, anything I could find and try to wedge this thing up in this big, fat Ducati Multistrada V4 trying to get it out of a buried mud puddle. But and I was on a golf I, course at that point. By that yeah, point, yeah, he was, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that was Look, one of those times. Anyway. Me and English got a 12.30 tea time. Can we wrap this up? Yeah, all right, all right. So so, so that'll do it. Uh, Steve, thanks so much. Any departing words from you before Jason gives his little speech on the way out? Yeah, nothing at all. Always just fun to get on with you guys and uh, chat bikes. As I said at the start, everyone that listens to the show is going to be just a big bike fan. So it's always nice to chat to you two guys because it's always, always the same whenever we get together. Well, to our listeners, 
I want to get G-Dub out here. G-Dub, we got to get you out here riding with us. Everybody's asking about you. we got a big December coming up. we got to get you out. You said you're coming. Are you coming back out this month at I'm, all? I'm out Sunday. I'm coming out Sunday. So That's what I do. Okay. There's a press, what, an arrive press launch I'm doing Monday. And then, so what are you doing next Tuesday? I, my plan was to come up to your house and do the podcast at your house next Tuesday. Love it. We could do that. We could do that. And then or we can come down. Uh, or, and I gotta, then I got to head to Chuck Walla Wednesday. But I mean, all the boys asking about you, even if you came out for a day or two just to hang out, we're all, uh, everybody wants you out there for everybody listening to the show. Hope you enjoyed it, Steve. Thank you so much for being on as usual. It's great having you upstairs doing it instead of over on the other side of the world. And uh, we're going to have a great week and G-Dub talk to you later. See you everybody. <laughs>